welcome to the Padang Sessions, an audio archive of lectures, panels, and conversations from National Gallery Singapore. Join us as we chart the art of Southeast Asia and beyond, one voice at a time. In this episode, we revisit a conversation between Gallery Senior Curators Seng Yu Jin and Lisa Horikawa, titled Nanyang Colors, Remembering Sang Ru Qi. Together, they spoke about their ongoing research on Sang Ru Qi, an artist who bridged the worlds of art, literature and theatre, and called for art in Singapore to depict local concerns, contexts and conditions. This conversation was recorded live in September 2019 at National Gallery Singapore. Thank you all so much for coming on the Saturday noon. Yeah. Um, today's topic, uh, Nanyang Colors, Remembering Zhang Ruqi. Zhang Ruqi, of course, is an artist that we cannot forget when we think of um, pre-war Singapore art. Born in Chaozhou in 1904, he was educated in Shanghai, Marseille, France, settled in Singapore in 1927. He served as the founding president and other senior, position, took, uh, other senior positions of the Society of Chinese Artists between 1936 to 1940, exhibiting its annual exhibition every year um, between these years while also being active in the fields of education, as well as other forms of visual production through comics and advertisement, which has been well um, explored uh, in Yao Lao Shu's uh, research. He unfortunately became a victim to the Sukqing operation by the Japanese army in 1942 and passed away. And he was killed uh, together with his brother-in-law, uh, Zhuang Youjiao. Uh, not being able to see the seeds that he planted um, of um, art, uh, the pre-war years in the post-war uh, Singapore later on. Much of what we know of Zhang is owing to the research by Yao Lao Shi um, in these two publications that we have here. So the first one was published in 1992 and 2018. So thanks to uh, his research, um, although his name has become more known in recent years, and he's often mentioned um, as a pioneer artist of pre-war Singapore art, there still remains a large gap in our knowledge of his artistic practice due to the limited number of surviving works. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of point out um, some of the hurdles that exist um, if one is to do a research on pre-Singapore art. Uh, regarding the Chinese Singaporean artists, um, the pre-war artists can be largely or generally be characterized as um, having done a wide uh, range of migration and trans-border movements. As in Zhang Ruqi's case, uh, he, he migrated from Chaozhou to Shanghai to Marcel, um, finally settling in Singapore. And these transborder movements have resulted in a situation where in order to trace an artist's trajectory, we need to come through multiple art histories. And in Zhang, Zhang Ruqi's case, uh, multiple art histories, meaning that of mainland China, of course, the Singapore, the region, and even uh, Europe as well. But in Jan's case, um, I, I think it's safely um, to say that the, there has been little attempt in unpacking and connecting his time in Singapore uh, with his earlier phases in China and France. 
So even if one is to look at the art historical um, narrative of China, um, the Nanyang related artists are often kind of placed on the ephemeral, oh sorry, on the um, on the margins of um, Chinese art history, and their names um, rarely appear in the mainstream um, art historical narrative. Probably with some expect expect uh, expect uh, expectation, sorry, expectations of um, Liu Kang and probably to a certain degree figures like uh, Chen Wenxi. Um, but Zhang Ruqi's name is, is rarely, rarely found in the art history uh, discourse of mainland China. So um, as Yao Shi has written in the past, um, we can also, um, I think, find a disconnect between the art history um, accounts written by a group of researchers who use English as the main language and those who use Chinese, um, like Yao Laoshi, um, in the coming through of the primary documents. So there's a gap or disconnect between the awareness of Zhang Ruqi's practice between researchers using different languages for their study as well. So that's just some of the characters that I think we can, characteristics that we can identify about the pre-war art historical uh, research. Um, and due to the scarcity of surviving uh, works by Zhang Ruqi, um, the past uh, writings on Zhan have relatively placed emphasis on his comics and illustrations that he contributed to various publications. Um, so Eugene and I have been um, visiting the families of Zhang Ruqi uh, in Singapore, of course, and plus uh, even in Australia, um, to collect bit by bit um, more information about the artist and really gather our knowledge of um, the existing works, you know, really get a grasp of what have survived um, by uh, Zhang Ruqi. So for today's work, uh, to, uh, the talk, I will share some findings from um, accounts on Zhang Ruqi uh, found in mainland um, publications and also the French archives um, that might help to provide more foundations in our understanding of Zhang Ruqi. Um, and then we will gradually uh, move over to uh, Eugene's uh, section where he will be uh, unpacking uh, Zhang Ruqi as an artist who bridged the worlds of art and literature through the concept of Nanyang color. So on Zhang Ruqi, um, prior to his settlement in Singapore, um, so far the earliest appearance of Zhang Ruqi um, I found so far um, was found in Shenbao, uh, one of the leading newspapers of the Republic in China uh, in 1923. Here um, in this article, his name appears along with 22 other names as the newly admitted class of Western painting class um, of Shanghai Fine Art School. Um, this school uh, in, was founded in 1912 um, by a group of cohort of um, teachers, uh, but most well-known would be probably uh, Liu Hai Su. And it was founded under the original name of uh, Shanghai Tu Hua Mei Shu Yuan, but later changed to this name. And Liu Hai Su, he was one of the proponents of calling for a spirit of um, change without an end. So, so, so for, for that, um, I mean, following this um, spirit of, of change and the need to modernize, um, it was a very progressive school um, compared, to, compared to others that were established at that time. 
and they open up their class to both male and female students um, and conducted even nude figure uh, studies um, in the class and plan air uh, drawing classes, which was quite progressive um, for that period. And just one year before Zhang Ruqi was admitted um, to the school, um, this, uh, the school introduced not only a class you know, that allowed female and male students to study together, but they also conducted nude um, you know, sketching uh, sessions using male and female uh, models, which really you know, was progressive or progressive um, at, at that time. So you can see that uh, one can imagine that um, Zhang Ruqi at that time was pro uh, kind of exposed to this very progressive ambience that placed emphasis on, on the modernity um, of this um, new um, art, right, form of art that was uh, being introduced to China at that time. Moving on to the next article, in 1924, Shen Bao reports that Zhang Ruqi and Wang, uh, Wang Yuanbo, both from Guangdong and completed studies at Shanghai Fine Arts School, uh, finding the domestic art scene to be immature, will depart to France for further studies. Zhang, by this time, was 20 years old, and um, only less than, less than a year um, of his study at Shanghai, he's already found Shanghai's art scene to be not enough. And it, it really shows um, Zhang as, uh, presents himself as an ambitious artist um, at this time. And in the following year, Shen um, Bao uh, reports... Uh, of a commemorative exhibition of um, Shanghai Art School that comprised of oil paintings, charcoal drawings, and watercolor paintings. And Zhang Ruqi is listed here as one of the artists who exhibited his work together with Liu Haisu. Um, unfortunately, I've not been able to find um, what type of works or exactly what, which works were exhibited in this show, but um, it shows that even um, after uh, his departure to France, he continued to engage with the school quite closely. And this was, um, might sound quite minuscule, but it was, I was really excited by this finding. So um, even though Zhang uh, Ruqi has been discussed as having studied in Marseille, there have been never, um, I think, concrete evidence as to from when and exactly where <laughs> he, was, he was in Marseille. So after multiple, multiple attempts of looking for his um, traces in the archive, libraries in Marseille, I finally um, managed to, with the help of the archive of the Marseille Municipal Archive, that, uh, to unearth um, a record that really uh, clearly stated that he belonged to a studio of a drawing class and he was registered in 1926. And the archival record also um, uh, had his residential address in, in, in Marseille. And I think, after, based on Google uh, search, that's an image. I think it still exists. It's just quite uh, nice. Yeah. And just as a supplementary um, background, um, I, I also did a similar sort of archival research uh, using the archives in, in Paris for looking for records of salon exhibitions and um, school registration records of Southeast Asian artists uh, in Paris between, uh, from the 19th century, late 19th century to 1960. And um, I think it's worth pointing out that there were three um, artists who were in uh, Paris 
uh, well, slightly later than, than, than Zhang Ruji, um, whose names were also found. And I think some of them, um, perhaps Zhou Biju, it's still, you know, I, I still need to do more research on this, but um, it could be, um, they could know each other, right? I think Zhang Ruji and um, some of these artists may have continued to um, have close relationship based on the shared experience in, in France to a certain degree. So that's also another research area that we could possibly look into in future. Okay. <coughs> so based on um, Yao Laoshu's research so far, um, it is said that uh, Zhang Ruji earned a teaching position in Singapore through a friend's introduction on Zhang's, uh, his way coming back from France um, and deciding to settle in Singapore. So his early years in Singapore, aside from teaching at Duanmen um, and uh, Yongqing schools and um, uh, designing of uh, the logo of Qin Qinian magazine in 1929, um, the rest um, of the background um, in his early years of Singapore still remains uh, relatively unknown. Um, and uh, in recent years, I'm, I'm really grateful for this, but the various archives of um, the uh, uh, institutions in China have become more um, easily accessible to us. So I've confirmed that in Shanghai Library uh, database that Zhang had designed this cover of Guangyi magazine. And as you can see here on the right, um, it's sort of an Art Deco-inspired um, image um, of, of a female showing her back um, and using this um, geometric um, uh, design that kind of emphasizes the, the line, right? The straight lines um, with a very decorative um, quality um, to it. And in the same issue of this magazine, um, this, mag uh, this issue included uh, multiple feature articles um, titled Beauty of Nude, uh, Fine Photography Works, um, Art and Suicide, um, as well as 41 Current Affairs of Nanyang. Um, I've not been able to identify whether this magazine was published in Singapore or uh, China, um, but according to the registration of, of um, the company that's on the side of the cover, it does mention um, the British or the, the, uh, the Great Britain uh, post, post, right? So I, I think, I believe it was published in Singapore, but that still requires more um, research. And in the same issue, there's also another um, photographer uh, page that shows an interior of a museum in Paris. And the photographer is attributed to Zhang Ruqi. So he also um, kind of, by this time, um, playing a role as someone who introduced um, the European art scenes that he was exposed to, uh, to an audience here. And just to add, um, <clears throat> Shen Bao newspaper, again, um, they published in 1932 an advertisement for the, newspaper, uh, for the new publication of Guide to Singapore. Um, this was published by the Wenhua Meishu, uh, Tushu Gongsu of Shanghai, and in which Zhang is mentioned as the designer of the cover. So I think that was one of the selling points, which means that Zhang was a known artist in, in Shanghai, right? And it's worth noting um, that into the early 30s, um, um, as, as exemplified by this ex um, case, that he, he continued to retain his connection with the Shanghai's um, publica uh, publication, um, pub sorry, publishing world. 
Um, so we, we kind of move on to kind of, of course, during the, the pre-war period and kind of the broader context of what was happening and also building on, on uh, Mr. Yomantong's kind of research and his talk earlier um, about how the earlier 20th century was actually a period whereby many Wenren of this, you know, the literati, um, they were actually coming from China to, to Singapore um, in the early 20th century. And, and this was not a coincidence because there was an explosion of um, Chinese schools being built in Singapore. Uh, and of course, they needed Chinese teachers. And most of these teachers actually came from China. So there was a kind of um, what we call the southward flight of literary men um, who came to Singapore and many of them were actually um, kind of securing roles as teachers in, in Chinese schools. Um, and um, of course, we are very familiar with the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts, but, um, which was established in 1938, but there were many other art schools, or art academies that were established um, prior to the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts, um, such as the Rose Art School, um, or Meikui Yi Yuan, or the Nanxing Fine Arts School, and, and so on. But the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts was the only art academy to reopen after the Second World War in 1946. Um, so in some sense, uh, it's interesting to look at the, the history of um, art in Singapore in terms of the impact of the Second World War, um, because it resulted in the closure of all these um, different uh, art schools in which um, the Nyang Academy of Fine Arts uh, was the only one to, to reopen. So the other art academies like Angel Art Academy, Art Academy, Sinan Art Academy, and so on. Um, to the point, you know, of this southward flight, literary man, there was this um, complaint by local authors like um, Luo Ting, who wrote an essay, an objection to literary men coming to the south to avoid the crisis in China. Because there were so many of these people coming in. Um, so there was a lot of competition, of course. So I think we tend to overlook uh, this important um, point about um, the kind of competition that was going on even among the, the, literary, the, the literary world or the literati world. Um, so this brings on to the next point, um, which um, Lisa has also mentioned about the Society of Chinese Artists, um, which was established in 1935. And initially, they took on a French name, uh, which also you know, talks about um, their kind of um, reference towards Europe, or in, in particular, France. Um, and they later renamed themselves as the Huawen Meishu Yan Jiu Hui uh, in 1936. And now they are Zhonghua Meishu Yan Jiu Hui. Right, so the name of the Society of Chinese Artists has changed over the years, and each time the name changed, I think it implies uh, a different shift in thinking, which is another topic. Um, the membership was really restricted, so it was really an elite um, group of you know, intellectuals. So they were not just painters per se, they were also recognized as intellectuals, and that's a very important point that we want to emphasize today, that we cannot understand artists like Zhang Ruqi just as a painter, because they were also very much part of the intellectual fraternity or the uh, Wenren that um, uh, Mr. Yomantong was talking about much earlier. So it was very much restricted to the graduates of the Shanghai Academy of Arts that Lisa was talking about, and also the Tsinghua Academy, of which many of our uh, pioneer artists um, were, were actually students of. Um, and so to get into the Society of Chinese Artists was very difficult. So that's the point. So you, you needed to have um, the academic background and the specific, you know, academies that, you know, um, you, you attended. So coming to the point about the, um, towards the period of um, the Sino-Japanese War. So if you think about the Sino-Japanese War, increasingly scholarship has pushed it to 1931. 
So that's when the Japanese invaded Manchuria rather than just 1937. So um, I think scholarship has also been pushing back our understanding of um, the Sino-Japanese War backwards. Um, we can see also many artists um, coming in, Shi Hong, Liu Haisu, uh, He Xiangning that um, Mr. Yomanto mentioned earlier, came to Singapore um, to raise funds and to give talks. So much of this research has been done by uh, Mr. Yomantong, of which you know, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to. Okay, next. So of course, um, coming back to the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts that was established in 1938. Um, so these were the uh, kind of important artists, the Lim Hak Tai. Um, Chen Chi Xiang wasn't an artist, but a son of um, Tang Ka Ki. So that was because of the connection between Tang Ka Ki and uh, Lim Hak Tai, because of um, Tang Ka Ki set up the Timei School in uh, Xiamen. And of course, uh, Lim Hak Tai himself was then one of the teachers uh, of the Jimei um, teaching um, college um, back in uh, Xiamen. And so, um, Chen Chui Xiang probably then brought uh, Lim Hak Tai to Singapore and then eventually established uh, the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts through also kind of Yong Man Sen, who was very much involved in the initial stages of the, the establishment of NAFA. Um, so some of the early teachers in Ink, you know, including um, Wu Zayan, um, Su Xiangto, and the son of Su Xiangto actually came earlier to Mr. Yeo Man Tong's talk. Um, and, and they taught um, Chinese Ink. And also uh, we have Western painting that was taught by Tsong Pai Mu and Sir Ren Hao. Um, oh, just behind. Okay, wonderful. Um, so this was very much based on the Beaux-Arts education in France. So again, you know, connecting connections between the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts um, to the kind of French um, tradition and curriculum. Um, but that's also kind of connected to um, the Shanghai Art, Arts Academy, um, adopting a kind of Western painting and Chinese uh, painting kind of curriculum. as kind of a hybrid curriculum that was then transferred to Singapore. So we can, can actually trace that transference of um, how art was actually taught in art academies um, through this kind of um, transfers taking place. And of course, most importantly, the Society of Chinese Artists um, organized the annual exhibition, which was at that time considered as the most important um, exhibition uh, in Singapore, okay. of which uh, Zhang Ruqi participated almost every year. In. So many of the teachers in, uh, in NAFA were also members of the Society of Chinese Artists, which showed the kind of close connections um, between um, the two. Um, so for example, Li Pang Tai, a Kao Peter that um, Lisa mentioned earlier, Huang Baofang, Zhong Pai Mu, and so on. They were both um, the, on the teaching staff of NAFA, as well as being members of the Society of Chinese Artists. Um, okay, so, and, and in fact, we look at Huang Baofang, for example, the previous slide, sorry. Um, he mentioned that, you know, as a Society of Chinese Artists was situated on the second floor of NAFA, members and students often interacted, encouraged and learned from each other, established good relationships and contributed to a conducive atmosphere for students to study art. So um, the close connections between the two NAFA and the Society of Chinese Artists um, cannot be kind of denied. You know, they kind of, they, they actually share um, the same space as well for some time. So looking at um, the kind of connections between um, the Nanyang, um, by looking at not just um, art, but also um, literature, visual culture, and um, theatre, is something that we wanted to emphasise um, today. And um, we look at pre-war literature. Um, so there were many artists, um, including Da Yinglang, uh, who was the editor of Jing Ru Yi Shu, Wen Jie, and Nanyang Xiang Bao. They were advancing, advancing the idea of Nanyang colour or Nanyang Se Cai. There was another term that was used at that time, which was Di Fang Se Cai, or local colour. But this was a period whereby this concept of Nanyang colour or Nanyang Sertai, whereby um, intellectuals uh, in Singapore uh, were kind of encouraging 
uh, artists, you know, painters, you know, writers and theatre practitioners to depict kind of um, works that engage with the actual conditions uh, in Singapore. So they were not trying to kind of um, produce works for an audience in China, but rather for an audience in Singapore. So that was a gradual shift um, towards this thinking uh, of having to kind of necessarily make works um, for Zhu Guo, you know, or China, but rather to shift, you know, to their thinking to being kind of rooted um, in Singapore. Um, so from 1927 to 1931, um, Nanyang Se was also politicized for some time under Marxist influence. This was more because of Lu Xin at that time. So, um, so they, they wanted to kind of, you know, kind of show or demonstrate or represent or depict the social realities um, along the, the themes of class struggle, discrimination and colonial um, society. So much of this was actually discussed in literary supplements of Fu Kan, of um, newspapers like Nanyang Xiang Pao or Xingzhou Ru Bao um, in Coconut Grove and, and so on. Okay, next. So in, in local color or Nanyang Se Cai or Difang Se Cai, um, it was explicitly employed by editors of uh, Huang Dao or as an attempt to kind of introduce works of Nanyang color uh, into the literary world. Um, and Zhang Jingyan was one of these uh, local writers and he said, and I quote him, we must try to describe our life in Nanyang, to describe it boldly. If we can do so, Nanyang literature will shine with dazzling splendor, unquote. So there was really a, a very strong kind of desire um, to depict the Nanyang or the local um, in Singapore. Okay, next. So um, looking at Zhang Ruqi, for example, he wasn't just an artist, so he was an editor of Xingguang. Um, so there were, there were artists that actually straddled the literary and fine art worlds. Um, so they were not just artists, they were also writers. And that's very important because they were a larger part of the kind of intellectual um, fraternity in Singapore. So Chen Lianqing was also the ed editor of Coconut Grove. Dai Yuleng was the editor of Art Today. So these were important writers and artists that were friends and interacted with each other. Um, and also coming back to the point about Lim Hak Tai as well. So he also was emphasizing um, the reality of the South Seas, um, having art that kind of depict the localness of the place, which eventually um, has uh, kind of developed into our understanding of um, the Nanyang, Nanyang style. Okay, next. So Zhang's uh, friendship, Zhang Ruqi's friendship with Chen Lianqing uh, is actually very well documented, Chen Lianqing being the writer. Uh, he was deeply involved in the proposing the creation of, of Nanyang color, particularly Chen Lianqing. Um, and Chen Lianqing was actually the editor of Le Bao, which um, if you read uh, Yang Mantong Lao Shi's writings, he draws a lot of sources from this particular newspaper, Le Bao. Um, and Chen Lianqing was actually the editor. Um, and I quote him again, you know, Chen Lianqing said, you know, um, ideologically, I've been under certain pressure recently. I'm dreaming of creating a kind of Nanyang culture. Firstly, we should press for academic research in Nanyang culture and the local literature, literature unquote. Um, so this was actually in his editor's note in uh, Coconut Grove in 1930. Okay, next. Yeah, so looking at Nanyang Color. So this is a work by um, Zhang Ruqi. So unfortunately, we do not know uh, where this painting is. So if any one of you here knows where it is, please let us know. To me, this is one of his most uh, important paintings. Unfortunately, um, yeah, we do not know its whereabouts. Um, but we do know it was exhibited at the fourth um, Society of Chinese Artists exhibition. This was their annual exhibition. As I've mentioned earlier, one of their most important exhibitions in 1939. And what really struck me is um, the titling of the painting, Mila and Jenna. This is really interesting because he actually named them. Um, so if you look at a lot of other works by our Nanyang artists, you know, Liu Kang, Chong Su Ping, and so on, usually we have titles like Malay Women, 
or you know, they, they're not named as individuals. Um, so there's a certain shift towards um, uh, a desire to understand them as individuals, a certain kind of subjectivities um, that um, um, Zhang Ruqi was interested in. Um, there's not a kind of romanticized depiction um, of people or, or local subject. And uh, what is also interesting is, I don't know if it's Mela or Jenna, but the front figure um, is actually engaging in a direct kind of um, contact with the viewer. So she's actually looking at us, the viewer kind of looking at her. So she's not just some kind of um, distant figure, but actually you know, an important, uh, a very active way of engaging with um, the viewer, um, in the case is us as well. So I think that's kind of a shift in our understanding of uh, Nanyang. Uh, you know, as a kind of perhaps criticisms of it as being romanticized or idealized. But if you look at the work, this particular work by Zhang Ruqi, I think that forms a kind of counter-narrative um, to his understanding of the Nanyang. And uh, we included this slide because we wanted to show Zhang Ruqi was also an important cartoonist. And being a cartoonist is interesting because it, included, it includes text and image. So we, we need to, and that also in a way embodies his position as both an artist and a writer. Um, and cartoons very much is a convergence or intersection of these two practices of being both a writer as well as um, uh, an artist, a painter. Um, so we, we have many of his works you know, in cartoons like this, The Poor Coolie, that was published um, in the Xingzhou Jitpo. So this is um, Lim Hak Tai's Six um, Precepts of uh, Nanyang Fong. This was published in 1955 in the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts uh, magazine. Um, and he, and I'll just like to point um, you to point three and four. So I'm um, thinking of the Nanyang as a kind of bridge connecting Eastern and Western art, as well as to depict the reality of the South Seas and point number five to depict the localness of a place. So these were not just isolated ideas. So Lim Hak Tai, um, uh, Chen Lianqing, Zhang Ruqi, they were all circulating the same ideas about um, Nanyang Se Tai or Nanyang, Nanyang Feng. This is a work by Lim Hak Tai, um, which is talks about uh, local conditions, right? kind of like clearing um, the jungles um, and kind of yeah, making new land. Um, it's part of modernization in Singapore. Okay. So in the large absence of surviving works by Zhang Ruqi, I think so far we've managed to find about 15 at the most works by, by him. Um, but we know he painted more, and in, in this kind of circumstance, um, I think one, one um, research method that, that we, we tried was to um, compile the list of artworks that were published in exhibition catalogs. So this um, kind of shows um, uh, an overview of this and the next slide. Um, 74 works that were exhibited in the annual exhibitions of Society of Chinese Artists um, over the, the four or five years, um, plus another exhibition from 1941. And I tried to um, map out, um, categorize them into, into different uh, groups of subject matters. So you can see that his, his practice really um, covered a wide range of subjects um, from still life, landscapes, um, portraiture, to um, more of his impressions of or observations of um, street life and, and the immediate surroundings um, of, of Singapore, and sometimes with um, political or moral um, messages, um, such as in the, the works that you can, uh, the titles that you see here, they commit these sins, or uh, life is short, learning is limitless. 
And moving on to the next slide, um, this is a compilation of the artwork titles that carry or um, Nanyang in inspiration, right? It's more of the um, subjects that are based in local um, context. Um, it's worth noting here that um, it's not only uh, from, uh, it's only from, sorry, it's only from 1940. Um, you can see in the titles here, Berastagi women, old uh, Berastagi women, Javanese. And in, uh, in 1940, you also see a title, Curling Man, uh, Balinese wood carving. In 1941, you start to see Bandong, right, in, in the title. So I think that indicates that he probably made um, some travels um, to these areas. Um, Berastagi is a northern um, Sumatra um, area around 1939, because the works were exhibited in 1940. Um, so that's interesting to know. And I think it's also in 1939 that you start to see um, his works that um, kind of engage with the subjects on a deeper level, as Eugene suggested, not kind of just um, treating um, the local communities as uh, mere um, subjects to be looked at, but individualizing or, or, or kind of identifying, seeing them as individuals. Um, and that's reflected in not only Mila and Jenna, but there's another work in 1939 called Tisa um, as well. Yeah. So kind of I'm not just treating um, these subjects as a broader ethnic groups as, um, but as individuals. Um, so 24 years um, after Zhang Ruqi's um, passing, in passing in 1966, um, just following the deaths of um, Lim Hak-tai and Yeo Mun-sen, which um, both of whom passed away in 1963 and 1962, um, respectively, there was an exhibition of, of these three artists held at the Chinese uh, Chamber of Commerce organized by the Singapore Art Society, where 26 uh, works by Zhang Ruqi were exhibited. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've not been able to locate most of the works that uh, were exhibited in, in this exhibition. Um, but what's notable, I think, in this exhibition is that unlike Lim Hak-tai and uh, Yeo Mun-sen, whose exhibited works included a range of uh, mediums or techniques, um, including Chinese paintings and you know, watercolor for Yeo Mun-sen, uh, for Zhang Ruqi, um, 24 works, 24 of the 26 were oil paintings. Uh, only two were um, Chinese um, paintings. So you can see that um, I think the, the strength um, of, of Zhang Ruqi when it came to fine art practice was really um, evolved around oral painting um, practice. And in the small catalog that was published for this exhibition, Chen Chongsui contributed a short text um, playing tribute to Zhang Ruqi. And here he mentioned, whilst um, his early works carried the dark, subdued mood, after, return, um, after returning from Europe, and by, by, by this he's referring to the second um, trip to Europe that Zhang Ruqi took, um, Zhang Ruqi changed his style. The dark colors turned bright, the muddy and thick became more lucid and elegant. In particular, his later works produced after his visit to the Mount Prastagi in Sumatra, his composition became more refined with expressions of figures livelier, getting just the right use of the line, the color, tonality, more precise and simple. 
Um, so again, um, I think here, um, based on even the accounts made by his um, artist friends and, and circles, um, the, the trip to uh, Birastagi um, can be um, supported here. Here, just two examples using um, works, unfortunately, um, both of which we have not been able to identify. The first one is this. We don't know the title nor the location of this work, probably painted around 1939 to 1940. Um, so based on, um, sorry, uh, so, Slightly different from um, the, the earlier example that uh, Eugene shared um, is that here um, neither of the subjects depicted um, are, are looking at the viewer, right? Um, so, um, in terms of whether Zhang Ruji's gaze, you know, up to certain, up to what level you can call it as a as a kind of an in-depth um, engagement or interaction with their subject, or is it still um, kind of mixed with um, sort of um, a, a perspective of the other, you know, looking at these subjects as the other, um, or the Orientalist or Gorgonist kind of. Um, Perspective. I think that waits to be um, analyzed. Um, but if you take a look at the next example, um, where you see uh, an image of uh, two old women uh, from the Batak uh, community, and I like the photograph that's next to it, uh, which is from 1920, taken by a European photographer, um, which seems to really, the one on the right, um, kind of places emphasis on this um, elaborate um, head dress um, of the subject, Zhang Ruqi seems to portray something or, or, or convey something different um, in this work. You know, he's not trying to kind of um, idealize um, his subjects. Um, they, you can still, you know, you can kind of sense the, the age and the, the wrinkles and the, the labor <laughs> that these two um, women um, have lived through almost. So I think um, what... Um, the nature of of, of Zhang Ruqi's um, and gaze um, upon his his subject really remains to be explored further. I think. Yep. So, um, building on what you know, Lisa has has talked about about Zhang Ruqi's travels um, to North Sumatra, in which uh, we have a kind of um, Chen Chong Sui's um, writings that substantiates that, because currently we we don't have other sources. Um, very clear, besides his artworks, of course. Liu Kang made a short reference to it in his um, ver uh, oral interviews, which you can access on National Archives record, but it's, it's still very limited and it's a second-hand account. Yeah. So it uh, helps us to rethink about um, the importance of the 1952 um, Bali trip that was undertaken um, by our four Nanyang artists, um, Liu Kang, Chen Chong Sui, Chong Su Ping, um, and Chen Wen Si. And um, of course, this was their important uh, trip to Bali in 1952, um, in which if you look at um, art historiography in Singapore, it has been installed as the moment in which um, the Nanyang, uh, Nanyang art, you know, if you want, came together. Um, and they started to kind of um, look at the region of Southeast Asia and to kind of bring together a hybridization of um, easel painting um, from the School of Paris, like Cubism, and then kind of hybridizing it with Chinese ink painting traditions, like using the format of the hand-scrolled uh, ink painting or the hanging-scroll uh, ink painting format. And of course, you know, depicting the local subject matter. So with these three elements coming together, we broadly understand that as 
um, the Nanyang style or Nanyang art. Um, and I think T.K. Sababati, uh, an important art historian, has summarized it most succinctly, succinctly as you know, scroll meets easel. You know, as in um, hand scroll or hanging scroll meets the easel. So it's Chinese painting meets Western uh, painting. Um, but I think that moment of Bali, of course, then culminated in the 1953 exhibition the next year. Um, and, and that has you know, resulted in, I think, a construction of a certain uh, art historical narrative in Singapore, um, especially in terms of our modern art history around uh, the Bali trip in 1952. I think what we are trying to do today, both Lisa and myself, and also uh, Mr. Yoman Tong, through his research into Chinese um, newspapers um, pre-war, um, and of course, through the works of Zhang Ruqi, for example, that you have seen of you know, images of Batak women, um, or Mila and Jenna that I've just showed you. We can see the earlier kind of conceptions of the Nanyang, um, predated 1952, of course, much earlier, um, to pre-war, um, and even to the 1920s and 1930s, through intersections between um, the literary worlds as well as the, the art world, through important artists like Zhang Ruqi, who was both a writer and editor, you know, um, and as well as a painter, and he was also, you know, occupying important position in the in the society of Chinese artists as its, you know, precedent um, at that time as well. So uh, we need to kind of, I think today, what we want to say is we need to rethink um, about our understanding of um, Nanyang art or Nanyang style um, at the moment in which, you know, the Bali trip in 1952 as an as a seminal moment, and perhaps to relook that, you know, and push it back further um, to pre-war. Um, to other artists and, and also their conceptions about, you know, the Nanyang. Um, and, and I think uh, with that, perhaps um, we'll, we will end um, our short presentation and take questions, you know, from, from the audience. Um, just in case you're curious, um, the person in the middle is um, Robert Chang, um, who's um, son. Um, and uh, we, we actually uh, visited him uh, in, in um, Sydney and uh, we tried to do some research there uh, as well. Yeah. So uh, please feel free to, to ask us any questions. Uh, we'll try to answer them. Uh, we have a microphone as well, so which we will pass to you. Yes, I'm curious. Um, you were saying that the this early group of immigrants were actually interested in depicting the realities. Mm. So, and with a political mm. aspect to it. But we always think about the non-young painters mm. from the uh, say the mature period as being completely non-political. Yeah. So I'm curious what happened. So, so thank you for your question. Um, it's actually a very important one. So I mentioned earlier also about how Nanyang color was in a way politicized, particularly through the kind of the Marxist um, ideas. It was actually circulating through Lushin as well. And later on, because of the Sino-Japanese War, there was also the idea of art as a weapon. Um, as a weapon um, to really you know, drive um, the kind of uh, movement and support um, during the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, effort, you know, against the Japanese. So, so art began to be conceived in a very different way. Um, I think that was also propelled by the Sino-Japanese War. So in a way, it was very much politicized um, because of that historical context uh, of the Sino-Japanese War. So I think you brought up a really important point. We need to rethink the Nanyang 
as something that was not necessarily just a kind of idealized um, representation of the region, um, but it was very much politicized as well, um, especially um, before the Second World War, um, the early phase of the Nanyang. So perhaps what we are proposing here is that there are different phases uh, of the Nanyang. The first phase, probably pre-war phase, in which it was very much politicized and the whole concept of the Nanyang color uh, was very much um, kind of, if you want, a theoretical concept that grounded it, and then later on, um, post-war, as another phase. Um, and, and I will even go further, you know, we talked about the reality, um, depicting reality, which was what exactly uh, Lim Hak Tai actually already mentioned in 1955, and he also mentioned it earlier as well, um, as a notion of kind of depicting the realities of, of the South Seas. This was always consistently kind of um, something like Lim Hak Tai um, uh, mentioned um, that the Nanyang was really about depicting the realities. So I think that's an important connection um, to think about that perhaps Nanyang, Nanyang art or Nanyang Meishu or Nanyang Yishu was never much about um, a kind of depoliticized notion of it. It was always politicized. Um, and that's an important trajectory that we shouldn't forget because then the next question is do we want to link that trajectory of the Nanyang in terms of depicting realities to the next generation of artists, like the social realist artists, like Chua Miati. Uh, and these, these were actually graduates of the um, NAFA, but they took a different direction. And our art history has kind of written them as kind of, they just took off a different path. Um, I would propose perhaps to rethink as a continuation uh, of the Nanyang, uh, because they were also depicting the realities uh, of Singapore and, and the region. Um, and perhaps we need to think of these social realist artists as being connected um, to the Nanyang rather than being separated uh, from it. Just to add briefly, even for the, the so-called you know, artists of Nanyang school, um, including figures like Chen Wenxi, Chen Wenxi, he, he did create a number of works in the 50s depicting the realities of, of Singapore. Stylistically, it was quite modernist. He was employing the cubistic language into his work, but the subject matters were quite based and rooted in the society, you know, the, the realities of the society, like laborers um, and people on the street. So we, we, I think when we think of Nanyang, we tend to kind of focus more on the obviously Nanyang subjects, but within that, I think there was a quite range of practice and um, I think among some of the artists who are, you know, part of the, the Nanyang uh, school, um, it was more complicated. And, and I think definitely, I think in, um, I think it's safe to say in Chen Wenxi's work, we can find a type of um, his sensibility and awareness of, of um, engaging with the realities around him. Yeah, in, in a more of a political um, kind of um, sense than, than just purely engaging them as aesthetic objects and subjects to be looked at. Um, I'm, I'm just asking about this catalogue. So I'm assuming this is a catalogue of the exhibitions and um, things like the commit decents, they were actual paintings. But I'm also curious because you said that there was an exhibition at Chinese Chamber of Commerce. Um, so they would know where the paintings came from. So how come those paintings are lost? Just to clarify, yeah. the titles um, that are covered in this particular slide, um, there are works that were exhibited in the Society of Chinese Art exhibitions between 1936 to 1940, um, plus the, another exhibition in 1941. The Chinese Chamber of Commerce exhibition was one that took place in 1966, and it was a different catalogue, so not 
um, the same. These are all um, based on the works that were exhibited in the 30s. Um, this, sorry, yeah, this catalog, you're right, that it yeah. does include a list of artworks and where um, each of these works were drawn from. Um, some of them, well, most of them, actually, they're, 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 um, I think one third of them were from the family's connect, uh, collections. Others um, were from other uh, artists um, and um, friends, I think, private collectors. So we just, I think the work that is needed is really, I mean, it was 1966 and now it's already, you know, 2019. So the works may have, you know, moved on or, or have been shifted to other collections, definitely, I think, for a lot of them. Um, we just need to do, like, and unpack the and, and, and trace the the movements of, of the artworks um, across different collections, and that takes a it's a very tedious um, process, um, kind of go visiting every collector <laughs> and their family members because most of the collectors from that time I think they have passed on already, um, so it will require some work on us. So it, it will require some detective work and stuff. Just, just to add from Lisa that this exhibition was organized by the Singapore Art Society. Um, so currently, the Singapore Art Society, of course, they are still active today. Um, but from my understanding, you know, it's also been difficult to maintain their own archives. Um, so we have helped the Society of Chinese Artists um, for them to transfer their archives to the resource center that um, Lisa is um, working on. Um, and uh, that, that is helping. So it's, it's a problem of the, how do we archive the institutional histories of these art societies that were so important. Uh, Society of Chinese Artists or the Singapore Art Society uh, are just two examples of art societies. Um, but we also have to appreciate that back then, um, exhibition making uh, was much more difficult, uh, really to kind of trace all these different works from different sources, bringing them together in the exhibition and documenting them. Uh, in the catalog. So what we also found out is that um, there were also, of course, you know, many mistakes that happened in this exhibition catalogs, but they've also been a very important resource as a primary resource for our research. So we do also have this catalog in our resource center and library, and uh, we welcome anybody who's interested to um, also have a look at these materials that we currently have. I must say that research is, is for everybody. Um, and um, this is really something that we want to kind of open up yeah, to everyone to kind of use our resource center, uh, not just for the curators to use it. Um, and also if you have materials that you wish to, you think that it's important and, and uh, might want to donate to the resource center, please also do let us know. Hi, uh, I'm curious about the previous slide on Chen Chong Sui's quote on him, like his, his change of colours from dark and mild to something more vibrant and colourful. Has there been like research done? Because it's, it seems like it probably got to do with him going to Paris, then like maybe attending more oil painting classes, then resulting to him having more oil painting works than Chinese painting work. Because if he's the president of the SCA, then that I, I don't know. Has that been research done on it? As far as we know, um, the, his study in Marseille was very brief. Um, it was recorded in 1926, but nothing further, you know, in, in the subsequent years. Um, and his second visit to Paris, it's, it's sorely based on this account. We have not been able to find other accounts of his Paris visit. Um, 
So uh, I think the impact of barriers, I mean, it still needs, needs to be um, investigated further. Um, I mean, this is um, Chen, Chen Chongsui's um, view of uh, summarizing it. But I think what's interesting is that, yes, he, whilst he does acknowledge his trip to Europe as kind of a turning moment in his practice with his color you know, um, uh, scheme, um, turning more towards the bright, um, he does also acknowledge later on that his travels to um, the surrounding um, areas in, in Southeast Asia was also um, that informed, um, that kind of took that, you know, um, direction even further, right? Um, so I think that's, yeah, it needs to be researched further. But if you look at the two works behind us, you can really see um, that the, the portrait, the self-portrait on the left is much more darker and subdued in the use of color, while this one is very different, right? So um, it's, he, he rarely dated his work, so that's, that's another kind of a, you know, uh, uh, difficult uh, point for curators to identify when exactly these works were located, but I think it requires to be looked into. Well, in, in a sense, this is not unique to Zhang Ruqi. So when we talked about Nanyang color, Nanyang Sir actually one of it really is how the palette then becomes much more brighter through the tropical um, kind of environment. Um, so Georgette Chen is also another example when she came to Singapore, kind of her colours changed as well. And that we can see kind of very clearly because we have a larger body of works by Georgette Chen to study. Um, as you can see for Chang Ruchi, um, it's much more difficult, particularly like we're also drawing on kind of images that's in black and white, um, that's documented in you know, exhibition catalogues and so on. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised um, that there, there was this shift uh, in using kind of brighter tropical kind of colours. A question behind? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm a Chinese tourist. I just walk into the sharing session. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, like, uh, I want to know what is exactly the Nanyang style painting? Uh, is that only the color or the theme you just mentioned, the, uh, the labors, like the woman? Um, but I want to know, like, what indicates the Nanyang? Uh, is that only Singapore or Southeast Asia? Because I just walk around, I saw many like Indian or Malay or in Indo China like style. Like, oh, sorry, my English is not that good. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for your question. Thank you for visiting the National Gallery. Um. So um, you're you're right. I mean, in the sense that uh, the Nanyang is is, um, I mentioned earlier, as a kind of hybridization of, say, um, Chinese ink painting traditions. In terms of the composition, it's like the hanging scroll format or the hand scroll format, um, and also Chinese um, brush technique. Um, and then that's hybridized with, uh, with um, the kind of easel painting. Um, that's from the West. So it could be you know, cubistic stylistically, it could be cubism, or it could be Western painting styles. And hybridizing them together with um, local subject matter. So this is you know, generally how we understand uh, what is uh, Nanyang Feng. Um, and um, your, your other question about how it connects broader. I think this is an expanding research on, on our part as well of the National Gallery. Um, so is the Nanyang necessarily uh, circumscribed by the ethnic? So is it just a Chinese perspective? of the region, um, which is why we, we, we termed it Nanyang, which is actually, of course, from the Chinese perspective coming in. Um, or can we also incorporate and think about how, um, say, for example, Malay artists also were kind of depicting um, the region 
of Southeast Asia and Singapore. And is that also part of what we consider as a Nanyang? And another consideration is the diasporic Chinese. So the diasporic Chinese are not just, of course, in, in Singapore, they are in Philippines, in Thailand, you know, in Indonesia and so on. So Liman Fong is an example. Um, Ang Kui Kok is another example in, in the Philippines. Um, so, so these are kind of diasporic Chinese artists. And um, do we consider you know, the works that they produce as being part of um, Nanyang Feng as well? So that's also another consideration um, that I must say scholarship is kind of currently kind of rethinking um, to kind of break out of the Nanyang as a kind of um, something that's circumscribed by the nation state like Singapore. Uh, and we need to kind of broaden it uh, to, to the region itself. Yeah, thank you. I think there was an earlier question about politics and the Nanyang. Um, could it be due to the fact that the Chinese artists or Chinese in general tend to be more socially and politically conscious? Um, like you've seen drawing caricature even all the way back to the Xinhai Geming in the Zhongxin Rebao, right? Where they start drawing. So the, the use of art with politics is not new for Chinese artist. I think I think you're 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 right in the sense that Chinese artists you can find examples from from quite an early period. And as as Eugene mentioned earlier, I think um, large part of it I think it was driven also by informed by um, their exposure to to Lucian and his philosophy about about art and the the political struggles that the Zhuguo or the you know mainland um, China was going through and from here um, sharing the sense of involvement and participation towards that movement I think that was um, there definitely but um, Compared to um, the Indian artists, say, or the Malay artists, I think that's a research area that really needs to be um, progressed. Um, we, I think at this point, we, we have been collaborating with the Malay Heritage Center to actually digitize um, the uh, periodicals um, published, um, not that early, I think, maybe around 50s to 60s. Um, but there are illustrations by Malay artists um, that are found in these periodicals that are waiting to be um, yeah, unearthed and studied. So um, I really invite all of you <laughs> to be part of this process. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we do have an example of, of what Lisa has mentioned in uh, cartoons um, by Malay artists um, that, are, that are political. So uh, we, are, we are hoping to present this research um, in a couple of years' time in the Singapore Gallery. So Akan Datang is coming. <laughs> yep. Any any other questions? Or do we do we have time, Mario, for more questions? Okay, one. Yeah. I just have a few comments. Uh, uh, recently, Hua Zhong, the Singapore Chinese High School had an exhibition in June, uh, helped to organize it. And uh, one of the purposes of the exhibition is to explore the early uh, art uh, teaching in, in, in Hua Chong, in Singapore in particular, okay? And Nim uh, <clears> Tai <throat> was one of the early art teachers. He first came to China, he taught in, in Hua Chong. And subsequently, our four famous artists all taught in Hua Chong. Okay, and Mahakta actually encouraged these four to go to Bali in 1952. 
we, the, we also we support from our principal because these four teachers were all drawing salary from Hua Chong. Okay, so they are given leave to go to Bali and the principal always complaining, where, where are they? And they never seem to come back. You know? <laughs> okay, uh, so we, we knew something about this. La. And also, Dim Haktai actually established Lanyang Meizuan. The word Lanyang already there in 1938. Separately from the Zhang Lu Chi's, uh, the, the organization. But subsequently, they are all in the same building, you know. One third floor, one second floor in Geylang, you know. Uh, so the Nanyang also already established. The word is already there. And if you look at Zhang Lu Chi's work, early work, uh, and also the Zhuang Yu Zhao, you look at uh, Wang Bao Fang, okay, uh, Chen Zhong Rui, actually, they are all very different style. You can say they are, they are not from, they are not, not Si Chen from the same, same teacher, same like in, in China, we talk about, if you learn from Liu Hai Su, it's Hai Pai, you know, you learn, you learn from, from, from Si An Pai, it's more Pai. Nanyang is not really a Pai. Nanyang actually, I, I would think, looking at more and more of this work, I would think the, the artists just use their, their own expertise, whether it's in oil, in ink, in watercolor, to depict the life in, in Nanyang. Basically, you know, whether in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, whatever. So, in fact, in our exhibition, we had early works of Chen Wenxi painting the Hong Tou Jin, you know, painting the Balinese woman, all these things, you know, all diff very different, even different style, even, even like Ban Hua, you know, they actually carving on, on, on formica, all these different work. And Zhong Si Ping one can be very modern, could, could be cubism, could be very abstract. And we also a Zhong Sibing painting our clock tower in 1948. And Lu Hen also 1948. Very, very similar style, almost the same color. You know, you can, in like this, uh, Lu Hen, uh, Zhang Lu Qi, almost the same kind of color, the, the use, you see. So it's like, they are trying to describe the world, the life around Southeast Asia, you see. But you see, Zhang Wenxi earlier, they had a lot of boy painting. But later on, he specialized in Zihua, in Suiwahua. And his painting actually is not really Lanyang. He, you know, his monkeys are not Lanyang. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, those cranes and all that are not really Lanyang. But he inherited from Pan Tian So. So that Zihua, he used the Xi Gu, the kind of style. So it's, it's another area again. So we want to call all this Lanyang. It's not fair. It's not really a real Lanyang. It's actually their, their own. I would say more Lanyang characteristic, not a pie. It cannot be called a Hua Pai. Hua Pai is very, very specialized. They have special school. They must follow the same star and all those things. Like Ling Lan Pai, you can tell straight away it's Ling Lan Pai, you know? Huh? Okay, Hai Pai, you can tell Hai Pai. You see, Gong Pi Hua, you can tell from Yu Fei An, you can tell, you see? But Lanyang one actually is very hard. Like what you people are trying to do research, it's actually very difficult, right? Although most of artists are Chinese, I think we have not done much research on the Malays and the Indian, you know, the Indonesian artists. Uh. So these are my basic comments. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your comments. And yeah, it was a great show. So, so, yeah, at um, Chinese time. Um, 
Eugene mentioned about the resource center. Um, actually, the resource center is currently closed. Um, we are renovating um, the facility and um, we are moving the facility actually to a new location in the rotunda um, of um, Southeast Asia Gallery. Um, and it will be reopening to the public in 14, 13, 14, 15th of, of October. So please um, come and use them. No, visit, uh, no appointments are needed. Um, all is welcome to come and access. Um, a lot of the materials that we shared today, they, are, they will be accessible there as well. Oh, yeah. So we will just like to thank everybody for coming. It was a great discussion. Yeah, thank you so much. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Find more of our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us for updates and new episodes every two weeks. To learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Mariel Chi, Royan Ng, and Tamaris Go from National Gallery Singapore. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening.